So we've been listening to David Haas's We Will Rise Again. You're on the Jesuit Institute Hour here at Radio Veritas. If you'd like to call us, the studio line is 011-452-7115 or you can SMS us at 41809. We're going to be talking now to Father Anthony Egan from the Jesuit Institute. As some of you know, Anthony is... Uh, amongst other things, a historian by training, and we're going to be talking to him a little bit about the impact, um, that, as he sees it, of Ahmed Katrada on the struggle movement and, and really what his life means for us as South Africans, both both in the lead-up to the end of apartheid but then also in the post-apartheid New South African era. So, Anthony, good morning and welcome to Radio Veritas. Good morning, Francis. Lovely to have you with us again. Pleasure. So yesterday we saw Ahmed Katrada uh, being buried, and I know there was there's been a lot of thinking about his contribution to the country. But I just I just thought, given that you really have a, a real insight into the struggle movement, if you'd like to just talk about what you see as being the significant things that Ahmed Katrada brought to the struggle movement and to the ANC as a as a, an organisation. Yeah. Well, let me start by telling you an actual story. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know Ahmed Kathrada at all, but I heard him speak once. It was 1989, after he and Mandela's comrades were released from prison. And I remember that speech he gave. It was the most powerful thing at the entire rally, at the entire welcome home. Uh, he talked about Auschwitz, about visiting Auschwitz while, before he was imprisoned. Uh, and and just seeing this and thinking, you know, this cannot be allowed to happen, this kind of horror. Uh, and I think it sums up the man. I mean, he had a very moral sense of what he was doing. I mean, I think he was one of those guys who went into politics not for his own soft game or anything like that, but out of a sense of what you know, this is. This is what you have to do to to make a contribution to the world you live in. Mm. And I mean, certainly in his own life, he'd been in the activist in uh, in the uh, Indian Congress. I think it started out, but then he was very much high, high-ranking guy in the ANC's military wing uh, in the early days when they were setting up Mkonto with Seizware. I mean, he was part of the group that were captured at Lily's Lee Farm, just north of here, mm-hmm. in Johannesburg. And, uh, you know, he was jailed together with um, Mandela and company. So he's of that sort of generation. And I think after his release from prison and after the the transition, I mean he didn't he didn't try and you know, hog the line right, but he was there always trying to stand up for what was right and decent. Mm. Um very interesting kind of character. I mean uh Muslim by background, Marxist in his politics but very much an open, open-minded kind of guy to all these different traditions, and a, and a very good-hearted soul. I mean, I think that that's how I would have described the man as a, as a public figure. I mean, I think call him, I would call him a moral revolutionary, in a sense that he stood for what he believed was morally right, and and stood for moral correctness, mm-hmm. and had no patience with corruption or lies or dishonesty, wherever it came from, even within the movement. 
I presume yesterday probably the thing that was most, in some ways, most newsworthy was, of course, McLante reading some of the letter that he had addressed to Jacob Zuma before his death, um, which was possibly one of the most con uh, controversial things he did uh, in the post-94 uh, era, writing to, to Jacob Zuma. And I, I just, what are your thoughts around that, Anthony, around his, his challenging, around this challenge that was that was given in the letter to Zuma to, to resign? Look, I mean, I think Kasrada, I think, speaks for a certain kind of ANC. I would say the sort of historic ANC, not the current crowd who are running it, uh, who stand for basic ideas like dignity, justice, freedom, human rights, uh, honesty, things like that, which are in short supply, I'm afraid, at the moment not just here, but in other countries. And um, in Kathrada, it's very common. I would say it's very it's typical Kathrada. I mean, that he stood up and said, no, this is nonsense, this is wrong, and this man is a, a disgrace and he must go. And I, I think it was a very interesting way in which that came up in the funeral, because in many ways I think that is what the folks who were at that funeral were saying they were saying, if you look at who were there, they were they were saying it's time it's time to stop this mess in the in the country, the rot that is set in that it seems to be eating away at, at, at our society. And I mean, yeah, I mean, there was the opportunity. I mean, in death, Kafala gave us one more opportunity to stand up and speak about decency and rights and human rights and dignity and honesty. And that that was um, and that's what they did. I mean, that's good. I would say hats off to Motlanti. I mean, I mean, more and more I look at Motlanti. I mean, his short, short time as president of the country may well be looked at as the one of the last uh, days of, of decent government from from the executive. I mean, after that, it's gone, you know, straight down. So, so I mean, that's very interesting when we think about. Um, where we are at the moment, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm really struck that, uh, just in terms of the timing, I'm struck by the timing of the recall of the finance minister and Katrada's death, and I realise that neither had anything to do with each other, but there was a sense of, you know, Gordon being, being able, because he'd been recalled, he was able to be at the funeral, but also there was a sense of, of this being really a moment highlighting the, 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 the huge gap in the ANC, the, the tension in the ANC between the current group that are in leadership and what one might call, um, yeah, the historic ANC. Mm. Look, I think, I think, you know, one, one would, would, would say that there, there was a history probably hidden from view uh, in exile of, of corruption. Um, certainly there is evidence of that, and certainly I've heard that from people who were in exile. Uh, mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, they centered around certain people who are now high up in government, shall we say. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the most part, I mean, there was a sense of principle. There was a sense of um, you know, a belief that you, know, you, you weren't in the, in the struggle to, to get rich and to make a fortune, but actually to... to to contribute to a better society, to a better country. And I think what we saw at the funeral yesterday was a group of those folk who believe in a better country, who believe in, 
decency, democracy, and, you know, a genuine consistency between what is said and what is done, uh, standing up and, and speaking up. And, uh, no, I mean, I was most impressed by them. I think they really are remarkable, that group. I mean, you know, they are taking a massive chance because really it is, it's a direct face-to-face confrontation with Jacob Zuma and his cronies. And, uh, the real question is whether whether those in Parliament will will actually you know, fall in behind people like Motlanchi and company and the memory of Ahmed Kasrada, or whether they'll fall in behind to it who's paying them their money. So we've we've got yet another one of those moments where we're we're kind of waiting to see will there be change or or, or will things just continue the way they are? And yeah. I was struck reading some of the, the, the articles about Ahmed Katrada. I was struck by the fact that he, he, he liked going back to Robben Island after all those years in prison there. Um, and it, it, I was just kind of, I was intrigued by this. And I've got to say that my, um, my spiritual director self kind of was, was emerging as I, as I read some of the comments he'd made. But I loved this one comment. He, he, when he spoke about going back to the island in the post-94 period, he said he liked the peace and quiet. Um, and it suddenly struck me that there's something about the experience of, of those people who were detained, who were oh, sorry, I can't hear you. Can you repeat that? Sorry. So he, sorry, I can't hear you. Okay, let me just try again. He, he was talking about enjoying going back to Robben Island in, in the post-94 period, which I found somewhat surprising because one could expect that having been imprisoned somewhere for the vast majority of your life, you wouldn't want to go anywhere near it. And yet he seemed to be drawn to going back to the island um, once he was free. And he's talked about liking the peace and quiet. And this is just a kind of musing question. But I found myself wondering whether we, we, when we kind of look at the people who came off Robben Island, there's a sense that... Uh, if we look at Mandela, if we look at Katrada, if we look at the other leaders who came off the island, there was a sense that, that as horrific as that experience was, they came out with a real depth of compassion and humility. And I just, I just wonder about why he was drawn to go back. And I, I wondered, I mean, this is, this is sheer speculation, but I wondered if you had any thoughts about this. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, the theologian Philip talks about what he calls negative contrast experiences, where sometimes you grow closer to God through suffering, through experiences of the negative, you are forced to con- confront what you believe in and what you think about and what you consider important. And I think that may have been something like that for people like Kafrada and others. Uh, if it was, you know, this had no, it made no romantic illusions of it. It was like Elish place. Yeah. And, I mean, above all, when I visited it, uh, I was struck by the sort of the sheer banality of the place. I mean, you think of Alcatraz, you're wrong. It's just a rather bland, ugly little prison. But there was something about that group there, particularly those who were there for that long period of time. I think they had to move beyond thinking about personal interest uh, in order to survive. If you thought about personal interest, you would, you would fall apart. So you had to build up a sense of solidarity. And I think what, that's what happened with those guys. They built up that sense of solidarity. They were able to actually go out there and, um, and, and you know, in a sense, 
they were, it's one of the reasons why Mandela was moved to to, um, to Polson, was because he was having too much influence, not just among the prisoners themselves, but the ordinary criminals who were on the, on the island, and even having influence, apparently, on some of the prison guards, who, who were completely bowled over by a guy who, you know, they, they expected that the man was an animal and had to be treated like an animal. He treated like him, them like a human being, and, and then they felt they could only treat him like a human being. And apparently, with some, there was a sort of awe for Mandela. And, and I think this, this whole thing of, you know, having to really build a life that moves beyond the sort of, you know, what we would consider to be the priorities of life, getting rich, uh, success, and everything else, all of that had been taken away. They had to get a sense of what priority in life was. And I suspect people like Kathrada, when he got back to uh, to South Africa, when he got back to normal life, so-called, I mean, I think he may have found some of the, the sort of banality of normal life rather disturbing because you know, people seem to be, and in fact were, you know, pursuing careers, looking for wealth and success and fame and glory. And he was wondering now... This, this all seems somewhat irrelevant. I mean, I'm speculating now, but I have a sense that he had to go back to the island to get a sense of what his real priorities were. And I think that's precisely the point of the man. He had a sense of what the important priorities were and what, what was of value and what was just uh, tinsel. And I think that's, what, that, that, that's why he would have gone back. To, to, in a sense, to remind himself of, you know, this is where I was, and this is what we went through, and this is why we went through it. And is this what, you know, what we're being asked to do now precisely what, what we were really fighting for, or is this just nonsense? Is this just fighting for a, a better, better model of the, uh, BMW? Well, on that very inspiring note, Anthony, I, um, I'm going to say goodbye, and thank you very much for chatting to us again this morning, and no doubt we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. So we're going to move now to a piece of music by the Carmelite Sisters.